Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex. Dr. Jana, Happy New Year. Is it is it, Again? Can, we, can we still can we still do that? No, we already did that last week. <laughs> All right. I thought you said there was no limit to it, saying Happy New Year. I mean, after you've seen <laughs> someone already, okay. you know. All right, fine. Well, Dr. John, welcome to episode number 55 of the Science Sex Podcast. 55. Double nickels, as they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so who do we have on these special programs? It's, gotta be, it's, it's special, right? 5-5? Five, five? It's got to mean something? I mean, sure. <laughs> yeah, if you say so. <laughs> who are we talking to today? Today we have a relatively new friend of mine, Dr. Gideon Nave who's a professor, assistant professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Oh, it's a fancy school. Yeah, and he's going to talk to us about some research on testosterone and oxytocin. So what testosterone can do, especially for men and, and their thinking, mm-hmm. and you know how they process information and make decisions. And then also all of the stuff that we've been thinking and, and researching about oxytocin, which is supposed to be the love hormone, you know, right. the bonding chemical, the liquid trust chemical <laughs> and whatnot, whether that's really holding water, whether the research is really saying, okay, there is an effect there or not. Okay. So All right. it's going to be a hormone and neurotransmitter oh, type <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna have to keep a tight leash episode. on you on are this you, one. Are you, are you okay with this? I'm gonna have to worry. I'm gonna have to. Keep, I'll keep a tight leash on you, Doctor John. I don't know what's gonna happen here, but no. Okay, that's interesting because you know it's one of those things we do talk about. It does you know pop into conversations for over the mm-hmm. you know our, our 50 plus episode lifespan about yeah. testosterone and hormones stuff like that. So we're gonna get into the nitty gritty science of it yes, today. Yes, so we will. That's cool. And before we get to that, we should ask everyone that we have a Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash/DrJana, where you can donate whatever you can. I know you you've you've used the anecdote of coffee cup yeah you, you can use a, whatever you spend on a coffee cup a day mm-hmm. or more or, or a snack or a, a meal a, you know think no think about it this way let's say you want to pick my brain or joe's brain about mm. anything no and no let's pick my brain but go ahead you know, I, maybe, I, maybe they do I maybe there be, is that was one very or nice two of you. yeah okay Aww. cool <laughs> but say they want to pick dr jana's brain sure yeah, and you're like can we go and have a cup of coffee and i'll buy you a cup of coffee to pick your brain or i'll buy you lunch or i'll buy you dinner so you know that's that's kind of how you can think about this. You're getting a piece of my brain, Joe's brain, and uh, guest's brain. Yes. And those are some really interesting brains. Okay. And you get a glimpse into those brains for, you know. Whatever, whatever. value you put at. Yeah. Okay, exactly. cool. And it's very easy, I understand, to get to the Patreon page, yes, right? it is. Patreon.com slash Dr. Jana. Dr. Shannon, um, may I ask you a personal question before we get Gideon on? I mean, depends. <laughs> I know. Oh boy. It, it's really hard to say that, right? But I, And it's hard for me to say, because knowing you as well as I do, just phrasing this question is going to be hard. But Goodness, what do you yeah. have in store? <laughs> do you think you've had the same amount of sex partners as your mother? What? <laughs> Can you repeat the question? Okay. Do you think you've had the same number of sex partners as your mother? No. <laughs> no. No. Okay. I you know, I'm not sure what her number of partners is, yeah. but I am pretty sure mine is higher. Okay. The, the reason I asked it is hard for me to say with a straight face. <laughs> Again, knowing you as well as I do, but there's a new study out of, the, out of Ohio State University, uh-huh. the old Buckeye State. They looked at more than 7,000 mothers and their children, and they found an unexpected connection. Okay, you ready for this? And this is <laughs> this leads to my question here. The number of quote romantic partners you've had is probably around the same number your mom had. You you quoting <laughs> the study? I don't think they said that in a study. They didn't say the number of romantic partners your mom had is the same as you had. Yes. And it's yes. No, yeah. uh, uh, they might have found that, but they did not write that in a in a, an academic paper. No. So what are you quoting? You're quoting some Daily Mail article. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sort of I'm putting it in more like normal speak. Oh, I see. Normal, I see. Like in like uh, everyday speak. I see. So you probably have the same number of romantic partners. <laughs> don't laugh. Is it, is it, it? So it's not. But in your case, it's not possible, right? You don't think? No, but just because they found a trend for that to be the case as a pattern Mm -hmm. over a large number of people doesn't mean that every single person no. in that sample had the exact same of number course. of partners as their mother. So, And, and the reason <laughs> but, I'm saying this, the researchers say it's probably because our mothers pass on relationship skills to us, which influences how we interact with everyone. So, for example, I'll be, mm-hmm. you know, I'll put up here. So my mother, my mother came from Cuba, met one guy, married him, mm-hmm. and just... You know, lived her whole life and just had the Stayed one guy. Mm-hmm. Me, 
I've had my my wife partner for twenty something years, and I was a late bloomer, so I didn't get a lot of action beforehand. Before that, so wow. look at me, me and mm-hmm. my mom, pretty similar. Again, I don't want to think about how many sex partners my has my mom has, but it's pretty easy to 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 uh, get that number. It's just right for for the her. One. It seems like I mean, who knows? She may have been cheating left and right. No, no? stop saying uh, that stop about my <laughs> poor mother. She she could be listening to this right now. Okay, 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 okay. So in my case, it mm-hmm. worked out, but you're, in your case, you're in pretty case, safe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, I actually don't know. Right. You know what what my mom's body count is. <laughs> body but, count, like like she's. Dri- that's what my students. Call Call it. Oh, really? I learned this, yeah, recently in, in one of my classes. They were trying to keep their body counts low. Oh, I'm geez. like, wow, that's an awful... That's an awful way to yeah, say it. Yeah, okay. We try to be sex positive. Right. I do not <laughs> want to use the word body count. <laughs> okay, that sounds okay. terrible. Okay, uh, number of sex partners. And so I don't know what the exact number is okay. that, that she has amassed over her <laughs> over the course of her life. But, you know, given my numbers, it's it's pretty safe to say that she's not there. But I, I, I'm going to push back on... So so you say, you say the... Researchers there were saying most likely this is due to mothers passing on relationship skills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, sure. I think that definitely plays a role, and not just skills, but also kind of patterns. You know, yeah. they provide the context for learning mm-hmm. of their kids as to what you know how relationships work. Is this something that you get into once and then stay there forever, yeah. or is it? Uh, are you are you seeing your mom? go through different different numbers of relationships and, and partners. And so there is an aspect of learning mm-hmm. and kind of internalizing that whatever it is that your mom did, yeah. uh, that's kind of the normal thing to do or the expected thing to do. But that's not all there is. I would say there is a probably there's probably a pretty high genetic component to oh, that. Okay. Yeah, because the number of partners, the tendency to seek out different partners and and other tendencies because this is not just about sex partners is understand this is about romantic partners relationship partners Mm -hmm. right and so there there's a bunch of skills and personality traits and all that that goes into whether you're going to have a long stable relationship or you're going to have a number of of shorter and maybe less stable relationships or whether you're going to cheat as part of those relationships or not so so a lot of those traits Mm -hmm. that determine how stable and monogamous your life is going to be, those have a genetic component. So you inherited not just seeing what your parents were doing, but also you inherited those same traits to some extent. And so that's why I would expect there to be a pretty decent, decently sized correlation between yeah, children and parents, partners. So you're saying Ma- Mama Vrangalova could be on Tinder over there in, in Macedonia? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> she swiping, might. <laughs> swiping away over there. You know, I wish, to be <laughs> honest. I wish she were swiping because, you know, she doesn't seem like she's had a partner for, for quite some time. That you know, know of, That, that you I know, know of. of. Right? I mean, I keep asking and she says no. And I'm like, well, get on Tinder. Oh, geez. All right, well, that's it. we've talked way too much about our mother's sex lives. Hey, you brought it up, <laughs> so... All right, let's let's stop here and please tell me about today's guest, Gideon. Dr. Gideon Nave is a marketing assistant professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He got his PhD in computation and neural systems at Caltech. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> uh, basically, how the mind works. And his research has used a medley of quantitative and experimental methods from the fields of computational neuroscience, cognitive psychology, game theory, and machine learning in order to reverse engineer the decision-making process in humans. Did you understand any of this? Not so much, but I'm sure, it's, <laughs> I'm sure we'll, we'll make sense of it. He's a really smart guy, yeah, who's done some really interesting research into how people make the decisions that they make. Cool. Let's talk to him. Dr. Gideon Nave, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So much of your work has, has revolved around effects of some of these hormones, neurotransmitters like testosterone, oxytocin, vasopressin, cortisol, and such. How did you end up studying all of this? Originally, I studied engineering, actually, and um, especially I was interested in designing algorithms that are capable of learning and solving problems, like, you know, machine learning or artificial intelligence. Mm, Yeah, uh, I saw that in your bio. It has nothing to do with with oxytocin, you know, the and love and sex hormones. No, I think if you had a crystal ball when I did my undergrad, you would never think that I'd end up in a podcast like uh, this with, uh, <laughs> with people like you. 
But you see, <laughs> time went by and then I got interested in how uh, the brain actually is capable of learning and solving problems, just uh, starting from the computers mm. and getting into the brains. And our brains are not, uh, you know, designed by engineers, but they have evolved over a long period of time uh, during evolution to solve problems in a way that uh, maximizes our success as species, right? Uh, we need to survive and we need to reproduce. Not only us, also animals. And of course, uh, humans uh, are descendants of uh, other types of uh, ancestors. The thing that got me interested in hormone is just one feature of animal and human behavior, uh, which uh, we don't often see in computers, is that we are very flexible and sensitive to the context that we are in. Mm. Well, just think of penguins in the North Pole that behave very differently in the summer and the winter. In the winter, they don't move a lot. Uh, and in the summer, they look for prey and uh, they uh, chill in the sun. <laughs> That's just one example. Uh, but uh, of course, we can think of it also in the case of humans. We have a lot of contexts and uh, sometimes we are more hungry. Sometimes we are more stressed. Sometimes there is uh, sexual opportunities and uh, our brains uh, are influenced by that. And one of the mechanisms in which the brain actually is translating these environmental influences into decision making and changes in cognition is using hormones. Right. Hormones, uh, I think that there are two key features of hormones that we need to think about uh, when we consider their role. So first of all, they are secreted to the bloodstream. So this means that they can reach all of the body and the brain uh, more or less uh, simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So they're not like neurotransmitters that just transmit information between cells. They can reach very fast to different locations in the body and the brain and coordinate activity. Now, let me ask a non-PhD question. <laughs> so it's been a long time since I had a biology class. For the folks who are not so sciencey, where are our hormones? How, are they, how do they get around our body? Like what's, 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 the, what's the, I mean, is it like a, a chemical? Yes. Is it, what, what, t tell us, tell me what that is. They are produced and secreted from glands. Glands are these uh, organs that are uh, specifically releasing these hormones. And they are released to the bloodstream. And once they are released to the bloodstream, there are all sorts of areas in the brain and the body that have cells with specific receptors. Mm. So these receptors are just waiting to get these hormonal signals. And once they get them, they change the way that they process information accordingly. That makes sense. Wow, yeah, that's, that's really you good. This is a sort of a wireless system. The what system? A wireless system to transmit information oh. in the body. So you can think of a telephone cord as like the nerves. So in order to have a nerve contact between organs, they need to be connected to each other with a nerve. But you can also have kind of a wireless contact with these glands, just sending information through the bloodstream and reaching everything. This is not your first oh. rodeo. You've you've spoken to idiots before, right? <laughs> this is good. I like how you you had all these anecdotes ready to go. I, I like it's that. It's important Gideon. to be able yeah. to to do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now yeah, I, I have some experience with idiots. <laughs> Thank oh you very God. much. <laughs> Great. Great that you two are having this conversation. Um, <laughs> Initially, when we were talking about you coming on the show, I get interested in some of your work on testosterone. And so we're going to talk about testosterone first and maybe then touch on oxytocin and maybe vasopressin uh, later uh, toward the end. So let's talk about T, testosterone, sex hormone. Joe, where mm -hmm. is it created? Where is it secreted from? So as Gideon said, hormones are made in glands. Mm -hmm. Which glands make testosterone? Oh. Uh, I think for men, it's probably in the scrotum area. In the scrotum area, what's in the scrotum? The testicles? Yes, testicles. Excellent. Okay. Okay, okay. so it's produced down there. Uh huh. Any other parts of the body that can make any other glands? Uh, the pituitary gland? <laughs> Is that one of them? I don't no. know. <laughs> no, it's not. Okay. Okay, you know, you, you got the main Good. area. Oof. Especially for men that make testosterone. We'll, we'll let Gideon tell us the rest. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, there are also the adrenal glands, uh, but uh, the concentration of testosterone is much higher in uh, men compared to women. It's, uh, it's a hormone that has uh, a lot uh, to do with the development of sexual differentiation. Men experience several boosts of testosterone throughout uh, development, prenatal development, that are actually uh, generating the uh, first differentiation of the embryo, like the development of uh, the penis, uh, among other things. And also during puberty, we experience a rise in testosterone that is related to changes in voice and, you know, growth of hair in all sorts of uh, areas that men uh, grow hair in, like, like beards mm. uh, and so on during puberty. Uh, but uh, it also fluctuates uh, during the day uh, in adults. 
It's typically higher in the morning, uh, but I, I don't want to make too much of the diurnal change because there are a lot of other hormones that change diurnally together with testosterone. So it's not clear uh, whether uh, these uh, diurnal changes are really translated to changes in behavior. Okay. And then there are some events that can also make testosterone spike. Yes, so the most notable thing is in animals, uh, some animals are seasonal breeders. So they have a kind of a breeding and mating season and during this time testosterone levels typically rise and uh, generate all sorts of behaviors that relate to mating. And uh, in humans we have some evidence, uh, for example, that life events like uh, the birth of a child leads to a drop of testosterone in men, mm-hmm. uh, divorce leads to an elevation of testosterone. <laughs> when you have a new child, kind of the focus is on making sure that that child survives as opposed to on mating and making new children, right? Whereas divorce, when you get divorced, then might be a time to start thinking about a new partner because the old one's gone. This is, this is all reasonable. I think uh, we're still dealing with understanding exactly what are the causal influence of testosterone or whether this is just things that covary together. It's very difficult to say. Like, for example, uh, think of uh, their findings that testosterone is related to history of violence and aggressive behavior among uh, inmates. So then the question is whether testosterone is making them aggressive or maybe just being in an aggressive environment is making your testosterone rise. Right. So I think that cause and effects uh, are quite conflated. Uh, and what my studies typically do is uh, overcome this by just giving testosterone to people in a randomized controlled trial. So we can give testosterone to some people and placebo to others. And so once we have a sufficiently large amount of people, we can say that testosterone is causing something. Right, because at the beginning of the study, everybody has, on average, both groups have similar levels of testosterone, which you measure, and then half of them randomly get assigned to get some tea, and half of them mm-hmm. randomly get assigned to get a placebo, and then that causes it an increase during that day, right? And mm-hmm. then you can see whether whatever you make them do mm-hmm. uh, is affected by that testosterone. Yes, exactly. And people typically even like one dose of testosterone is not enough for you to really feel like you got testosterone. So all of the effects we see are kind of happening in a subconscious level. Gideon, it seems like testosterone is having a moment now. Uh, it's You know, if you turn on TV, there's always like tea boosters and, uh, you know, men having low tea. Why, why, why is this all of a sudden happening now? Is it just are we more aware of it? What's the deal with that? So I, I think that there are two things that happen at the same time. One of them is uh, just the development of uh, ways to administer it easily. What are some and, ways to administer it easily? Like using cream, you can just, there is an, a synthetic cream that uh, men can buy and you can uh, just put it on your skin and uh, get instead elevation of, of testosterone. Instead of like body lotion after after a shower, you put some... Yeah, sort of. I'd say that, uh, I mean... I know that there are cases when uh, this cream also kind of like travels from the man to the woman it touches or to the pet it touches or to the grandchildren it touches and it can lead to all sorts of harmful uh, outcomes. But overall, yes, this is a way to do so. I think the second is uh, just uh, the fact that we humans are quite obsessed with uh, making ourselves better. And uh, there is some belief that maybe a long time held belief that maybe this is a way to make ourselves better on some domains. <laughs> uh, and that makes it a great product. It's a $2.5 billion industry that is uh, now is actually, I think that the growth of testosterone prescriptions has stopped a little bit. Uh, it's not very clear uh, still what it really does. We know that there are a lot of physiological effects, but there could be also, you know, unintended consequences like uh, increased rate of heart attacks mm. and uh, maybe also uh, some psychological things that uh, are not well studied on which uh, I'm doing my work. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about about that. What are some of the effects that we sort of psychological effects that we are kind of wondering about or have, have been studying and where does your work come in? So one of the studies uh, that I ran was about uh, cognition. Let me ask you one quiz to just to demonstrate. So it's a math quiz, but it's not a very difficult one. Uh-oh. Joe is going to fail this. Thanks, John. <laughs> All right. Let, let, let's try. And let's actually see who comes first with the answer, right? Let's okay. make it interesting. We can make a competition. The man against the woman uh, and vice versa. It's not so fair have, in this situation. But go we ahead. A coffee. Yeah. We're going to a cafe and we're going to get a coffee and a cookie. Okay. And together they cost a dollar and ten cents. Mm-hmm. Now, the coffee costs $1 more than the 
cookie. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's the price of the coffee? So cookie and coffee cost dollar and ten cents together. Yes. The coffee's dollar is worth a dollar more, or costs yes. a dollar more. Yes. Yes. What's the price of the coffee? What's the price of the coffee? I mean, this seems like an easy question, but is it a dollar? <laughs> if this is the answer, then what would be the difference between the price of the coffee and the cookie? A dollar. No, dollar and nine and ten cents. The difference is ninety cents. Oh, right? ninety cents. Right. Right. So, so you gave an incorrect answer, which is uh, the first thing that came to your mind, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, this is what me, most many people do. I mean, fifty uh, percent of MIT students also give this answer. Fifty percent. And of course, they're capable of finding the answer. The correct answer, by the way, is dollar or five and five cents. Point five. Yeah. That together yeah. add up to a dollar and ten cents, and there is a dollar difference between them. But you know, one, you don't hold always on, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm so freaking confused. Okay. What? The the cheaper I keep forgetting which one is the cheaper, but the cheaper one the, is five cents. Okay. But he said the the coffee's a dollar more than the is cookie. It's a dollar more. So it's a dollar and five cents. The more expensive one is a dollar and five. Okay. The cheaper one is five cents. Together they make one dollar ten cents. Oh, okay. You you can't otherwise the math doesn't work out if if the coffee is is uh, whatever the cheaper yeah. is ten right and then this one is a dollar then it's a dollar then you get taller and like you get more okay got yeah. it all right it's just all right very math good. works yeah. out I very, the very test. good yeah <laughs> I'm very impressed I think I think Jana knew that question already it wasn't fair I think you've had that question before haven't you Jana I actually have yeah, had that question okay. When I got it, I solved it. I actually, it's funny. I I knew that it couldn't be the obvious answer. And so I, I did the whole math. Like I wrote out. Oh, I actually wrote out like X minus, <laughs> you know, Y equals 10 cents. X plus Y equals $1, 10 cents. And that's how I got it, right. <laughs> which I'm embarrassed to say. I totally should have been able to do it without doing that level of math. But. All right. So Gideon, why did you do that to us just now? What, what, was, was, the, what was the point the, of that? That's a perfect question when we have like a very clear intuition that comes to our mind, right? It costs nothing because it just jumps to our head, but it's wrong, right? So basically mm -hmm. our brains many times have shortcuts that gives us answers that are fast. And, you know, most of the time they're actually accurate. They're not that bad, but in some conditions they're not going to be accurate. And we need to reflect on them and think it through and, you know, deliberate and get to the correct answer. And our capacity to do this, to recognize the possibility that our intuitions are wrong, is called cognitive reflection. Cognitive reflection. Okay. So yes. the ability to recognize that our first intuition might be wrong and then give ourselves some time to take a more deliberate process of thinking. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that I'm interested in is in under what circumstances we are tended to have less cognitive reflection than others. In one of the experiments I ran, we gave people either testosterone or placebo, and we found that giving testosterone to people is uh, making them more likely to fail in questions like uh, the cookie and the coffee <laughs> question. So they're more likely to come up with faster responses that are wrong. So, so to say the dollar. they're more likely to rely on their intuitions. Right. So I'm just loaded up with testosterone is the issue. <laughs> we've we've, I, we've I solved it. It's a small effect, uh, <laughs> and uh, many people uh, get it wrong even with having low testosterone. Oh, so thanks, I won't uh, go as far as that. But, you know, uh, and just remember that there are some situations in which uh, your intuitions are going to be right and relying on them and being faster and not getting into this active thinking and deliberating uh, will help you. Like, it took uh, Jana quite some time to get to the right answer, <laughs> yeah. right? pen and paper. And testosterone many times rises in men in contexts where maybe it's better to be Quick. You know, faster and rely on instincts than being accurate and thoughtful. One of these examples is uh, athletic competitions, right? I think that thinking too much uh, before you start the competition maybe will make you perform slower. But that's just one example. There are uh, many situations in life where uh, your instincts are actually very well calibrated to respond to the situation, and you don't need to use this, you know, deliberate information processing to respond optimally. You may want to ask, what are these contexts? So... <laughs> One uh, interesting theory in animal behavior, uh, theory of uh, Nobelore Tinbergen, 
is that there are five main behaviors that are called instinctive behaviors uh, in animals. And uh, we call these behaviors the five Fs. Mm -hmm. So the five Fs are fight, flight, freeze, feed, and mate. That's not an F. M mate is not an F. It is. <laughs> no, it's not. You can say the right word. Oh, I think he d he's afraid to say fuck. Is that what it yeah. is? Oh, God. Yeah. All right. Like, come on, just say fuck. <laughs> the five Fs are... Light, five, freeze, feed, and fuck. There you go. We got a Wharton professor to say fuck <laughs> on the radio. Yes. Probably not the <laughs> first, but yeah. <laughs> now, in this context, when these behaviors are... That have kind of like instincts that execute them, maybe thinking too much is not going to help you, right? You already have some kind of uh, response that is instinctive and uh, will get you to reproduce and survive better mm -hmm. and this might be one of the reasons for which we see this effect of testosterone on cognitive reflection this reduction in cognitive reflection mm. i think you started saying this earlier but there are a lot of different ev events that can increase testosterone in in humans and one of those is the presence of potential mates right the potential attractive partner and mates that you might yeah, be around I, right I, I'd say this way. Many of the studies are still with small samples. We still need to replicate them. But yes, one of the findings that has been uh, proposed is that uh, while interacting with an attractive mate, uh, men experience this uh, uh, transient elevation in testosterone, uh, which may put them in sort of a, you know, mating mode, which uh, could make them maybe be less deliberate and uh, want to act confidently and uh, rely on their instincts. Uh, so that's one option. Mm -hmm. There is well, there is still a lot of research in progress on that, but uh, I have another study that is kind of related to it, uh, which relates to status uh, mm -hmm. products. Okay, let's talk about that as well, and then uh, and then I want to kind of bring you back to like, how do we really think about what this does in humans, you know, out in the <laughs> wild? <laughs> so your other study looked at how testosterone affects men's perception of status status goods, right? Mm -hmm. Status products. Yeah, so we know from animals, again, that testosterone levels typically rise during the breeding season. And uh, they're also associated with display of uh, some puzzles in evolutionary uh, biology. So evolution basically says that traits that are helping you survive should uh, develop. And traits that are making your survival uh, less probable are going to just be eradicated mm -hmm. but there are some animals that have all sorts of traits that do not seem to directly increase their survival rates like uh, peacocks for example that have these long trains that uh, are heavy and uh, bulky and uh, make them more vulnerable to predators stags have uh, heavy antlers that uh, also i mean they get they caught in all sorts of things get caught and uh, you know they're just heavy to carry mm -hmm. and uh these are puzzles in evolutionary biology because they don't directly increase the probability of survival of the animal. Right. And this puzzle has been uh, solved by something that is known as the handicap principle. The idea is that these things are actually handicaps that the animals put on themselves. And by having these handicaps, they can actually show that they are sufficiently fit to have these handicaps. Right. So only if I'm fit, I can afford wasting resources on having these antlers or this train. Does that make sense, John? Yeah, totally. Right. Only the yeah. fittest can yeah. have you know, this extra resources to put into these things that don't actually help with your survival. And if anything, they're, they're kind of making it more difficult, difficult. for you to yeah. survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, I mean, I think we don't need to look too far to find similar patterns in humans. So think of uh, luxury products like uh, a fancy watch, right? Mm -hmm. A fancy watch uh, like a Rolex, it's going to tell you the same time as, a, <laughs> as, you know, a $5 Casio watch. Right. But it also is a signal that you're capable of spending money on a watch, right? Mm -hmm. It's a sign of having money. Which in humans means you have all these other, you know, potential desirable traits of fitness yes. and, and we, yeah. We can also think of cars, right? Like driving a limo or a Hummer. Mm -hmm. Like who really needs a car that is this big unless it is a car that is a reliable signal of your social status, right? right. It is wasting a lot of resources 
it wastes wastes space, it wastes energy. But mm -hmm. by wasting, I can actually show others that I'm capable of doing it. Right. In other words, I'm rich. And uh, what we looked at uh, in this study is whether giving testosterone to people makes them more interested in products that uh, are sort of these uh, costly signals of uh, social status. Mm -hmm. And um, we found that indeed. Well, uh, and behold, it did. <laughs> that it did, that the people who received testosterone, again, these are small effects. We're not also looking at actual behavior. So we just asked them for their attitudes towards all sorts of products uh, and brands also. Mm -hmm. uh, and we could rule out the quality story because, you know, if you have uh, our money has better quality than uh, Old Navy, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, we search especially for brands that are perceived equally among the population in their quality, but differ in their social status. Mm -hmm. And the people who receive testosterone were more likely to like the higher status version of these brands, even when the quality was the same. the same. And e they kept perceiving the quality as the same. So the testosterone didn't make them feel like this was a higher quality product. It only made them like the higher uh, status one, right? Yeah. You did your homework, Jenna. <laughs> I do tend to read the studies. <laughs> she likes yeah. to impress the researchers. I want to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's not for status, y'all. No, okay. It's for quality. Got it. Okay. okay? I feel And you've yeah. got your hands on your hands. I have not been given any testosterone. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think that we also need to think of status products as, I mean, we tend to think of them as, uh, you know, a gold watch or so on, but it really depends on your uh, community, right? Maybe among uh, hipsters or other types of population actually wearing cheap, ugly clothes that nobody else wears <laughs> is going to be the status, that, the status uh, product. Symbol, maybe yeah. in this kind of environment, testosterone is going to lead to this effect. Mm. It really depends on what is the social context you're in. We ran this study in uh, college students of a pretty prestigious college in uh, California. Uh, this is what we found. We pre-tested the stimulus before, but I'm sure if we'll run it in Bushwick, we may get different results <laughs> and uh, we're going to have to use different products. Yeah, I mean, if the hypothesis is that testosterone is going to boost status-seeking, right, whatever that status, whatever those behaviors or items or whatever it is that will boost status in that particular environment, that's what the testosterone is going to boost, right, as opposed to, and, and, and what those behaviors or, or items are is going to depend from, from a place to place, from a community to community. Exactly. So basically you can argue because you have this experimental paradigm where you randomly assign half of your participants to receive testosterone, half of them not to receive it, you can argue that these differences in liking more status goods and uh, lower cognitive reflection in the previous study that they are actively caused by the testosterone. Yes, though so I would add that uh, the interaction between behavior and hormones is very likely bidirectional. So let's assume that uh, I uh, buy status products. It's may, it may also have, uh, again, a feedback that will increase my testosterone levels. There is actually one study that uh, where they just measured testosterone, but they randomly assigned students to either drive a Porsche or a family sedan. Mm -hmm. What they found is that when you drive the Porsche, it leads to an elevation in testosterone levels. Right. So it, it looks like there is something that is maybe self-reinforcing. Once you get on this Porsche, your testosterone level rise and you want to... You, you want know, two pushes. Keep driving it <laughs> and keep increasing and keep driving it. So I think that in reality, the, the interaction is uh, more complex. And uh, that's why we do these studies in the lab in a controlled environment where we can give testosterone or placebo and see how it affects causally right. behavior. Or you give the Porsche or the sedan and then see what happens to the T. Um, exactly. And, and how is this? I, I know you included some measures in the study of what we believe is prenatal levels of testosterone exposure, because a lot of the, the conversation around hormones and how they affect behavior has these two kind of elements. One, what are current levels of circulating hormones in your, in your body, in your blood at the moment? What are they doing to your behavior? But then the other question is, what are the initial exposure of those hormones when you are in utero, when you are during prenatal development? In what way may may they have influenced 
later kind of uh, behavior or your brain in a way that is going to affect later behavior. And so um, what did you find there? Are there some, is there indication that your prenatal levels of testosterone exposure affects or is, is, is related to some of these things like cognitive reflection and status goods? So in order to actually know the prenatal level of testosterone uh, of people who are living nowadays, we need to have access to their, you know, prenatal level of biofluids, body fluids. Which uh, most of the time we don't. We don't have access to. And uh, scholars have suggested, uh, I don't know, 13 years ago already, that uh, the ratio between your fourth and second digit correlates or is somehow associated with the level of testosterone that you were exposed to in the utero. You, Joe, we you remember we yeah. talked about the 2D, 4D mm-hmm. ratio with uh, Gerolf when we talked about sexual orientation. Right. Yeah. Yes. My view, I mean, we did measure it because it's many times measured. My own view is that this is not a very good biomarker for prenatal testosterone. Uh, so I don't want to make much uh, of uh, finding or not finding association with it. Uh, the main reason is that it's just a very noisy measurement. And we also know that it is influenced by many other things like uh, genetics, uh, growth hormones. Uh, it's just not a very good biomarker to study it. Uh, I mean, it maybe is easier and better than any other things we can measure because we can still... go back in time and right. take uh, measures of testosterone when we were uh, in the utero. Right. But uh, it's not a very strong measure and... Uh, so very often you might not find any effects because, as you said, it's noisy, and, and that that means that the, the prenatal levels of T, you know, may have influenced it a little bit, but there are other things that may have influenced it as well. And so when you measure that in adults, you might not find an effect between that and whatever it is that you're measuring. Um, but that doesn't mean that testosterone didn't have an effect. Um, right. It's just more of a methodological uh, caveat that. Uh, I mean, the best way to do it is to measure it uh, in the utero and then wait for the kids to grow up and uh, see how they develop. But uh, I wish we did this. Like, I, th- I think all pregnant, you know, mothers should do this. Should should have <laughs> if they're especially if they're doing some kind of uh, you know amniocentesis for whatever other reason, right? You could measure T in that as well, and then you can store that as your as your. Like you store other health records, this could be part of your oh, health records. Got it. Right, and then later on, when people grow up, researchers could go back and look at those health records. That would be amazing. Yeah. So uh, potentially, I think uh, <laughs> the costs of doing it, uh, incre- uh, I mean, decreased uh, in the last uh, ten years, and maybe also there are better tests to do it. So hopefully, in the future. Uh, yeah. But at the moment, it's very hard to like backtrack your testosterone exposure level based on your finger uh, ratios alone. Okay, so how, uh, to bring this back to some of the implications of these findings, how, especially in the context of mating, flirting and negotiating sexual situations, actually having sex and, and so on, how are these effects of testosterone on men? Because we don't quite know what is happening with the women, but uh, how does that affect men's ability to make some of these decisions and and how quickly they make them and what kinds of decisions and how capable they are of deliberating and choosing one over the other and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think for start, we should be aware of that. I don't know if having less cognitive reflection will always uh, hurt you. Uh, I mean, we can actually see that uh, sometimes just being confident and just uh, saying the first thing that comes to your mind uh, is uh, perceived well by others and can have mm-hmm. even maybe help you get elected. So, uh, <laughs> so I wouldn't uh, run and say bad. that uh, it's bad. Mm-hmm. I think we should be aware of it. There are some situations when our intuitions are good. There are some situations when our intuitions are bad. Uh, typically when we have a lot of practice and we're in a repeated uh, environment, uh, that we could have learned uh, how to behave in, uh, maybe relying on the intuition and responding faster is better. The same goes with competitions, right? Think of uh, being in a trivia competition. Uh, you need to respond uh, accurately, but also if uh, you're the second to press the button, you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. So uh, so <laughs> it really depends on the situations. Of course, uh, we should be aware of the fact that uh, maybe, maybe this uh, status product that... Uh, we buy, I don't know how much uh, they actually influence, uh, like 
we think that they're making us uh, perceive this better. Maybe sometimes they work, sometimes not. Uh, just uh, we should pay attention to how our biology sometimes uh, make us uh, do things that mm. we may regret. Uh, <laughs> so does testosterone sort of fuel our instincts and our impulses? I mean, is that sort of, I mean, I guess it's, it's kind of like an intangible thing, but is that sort of like what our instincts, when you get a feeling, is that coming from the testosterone? I don't think that the feeling itself comes, but uh, probably your uh, reliance on it. Right, the testosterone makes uh, you more likely... to inhibit this instinct is decreased. Uh, right, the testosterone yes. makes you more likely to act instinctively Got as it. opposed to deliberate more deliberately and slow, more slowly. Uh, you know, the instinct comes from a long history of, of evolution, kind Got of it. making that instinct a, a needed or a useful behavior but the testosterone will make that a situation when you go for the instinct as opposed to taking Got taking it. a slower approach hmm. yes. okay I, i'd say that also i mean we we do need to do more research to delve into this mechanism of what is really going on is it more like the instinct becomes stronger or is it your inhibition becomes weaker is it right. because you want to be faster or is it because you don't care about being less accurate or, uh, you know, uh, also to generalize this to other populations. Mm. So uh, there is much research that has to be done. Uh, this is the frontier now, and uh, it's just the beginning. Right. I mean, these studies that, that you were describing are just coming out now, this year and last year. So we're really just pushing the limits. Now, just to take this a little further and play a little bit of a devil's advocate, I can see how if some of that kind of misogynistic, sexist manosphere uh, or, or I don't know, red pill, whatever movement among some, some, some men out there who are arguing for our society, kind of going back to a very strong division of men and women and their personalities and, and who are arguing that this is all kind of you know, men and women are very different, Mars versus Venus, and that that's how things are and should be, and we have to bring them back and whatever, and that that's part of our... That, that's our nature, right? So there's a whole not very pleasant world, especially online out there. But I can totally see how if they got a hold of this, of these data, they would interpret it in a way that is to say, well, because mating or, or fucking, as you said, is one of the five Fs, one of those five instinctual behaviors, when we are in a, when men are in the situation of an attractive potential partner, you know, we go into that instinctual mode because of the testosterone and we sort of can't help ourselves to approach or, you know, even even push against some level of rejection or lack of interest and all that. How do you address that? Well, you know, we have similar effects with uh, which relate to stress. We have similar effects that maybe relate also to women hormones. Like, it's not going to end here with testosterone. Testosterone is not the only thing. Like hunger, right? Does hunger justify uh, every sort of behavior? Right, right. Can I say I was hungry, so I just killed the man? I don't right. think so. So, what, what if you're hangry, though? <laughs> That's different. <laughs> If you're hangry, you know, I don't think that killing is justified, but uh, yeah, you may, may make uh, stupid decisions. Now, of course, if the consequence of these uh, stupid decisions is, uh, is you being harmed, then, you know, maybe you should think about it before. But if you're harming other people, then this is just for just justification. We are all humans, right? Mm. So we all have our, our vulnerabilities, but... Uh, I don't know if I got stressed and killed somebody, is this going to be helpful for me in court? Like just saying that I got stressed. <laughs> right. I'm not sure. Okay. So we don't have too much time left. And I did want to switch and talk a little bit about oxytocin, which many listeners of this podcast have probably heard about in some way, shape or form. Maybe even Joe has heard about it. Even Joe. <laughs> There's no need to say the word even Joe. I get it. But a, a, a few years ago, I don't know, uh, Gideon, you probably know more about exactly when this hype happened. But at one point, oxytocin kind of blew up as in the media as the love hormone, as the liquid trust hormone, as this, like the, like this a chemical that makes people bond and connect with one another and fall in love with one another and so on. And more recently, some of your own research and other people's research have put some doubts, uh, poked some holes in this kind of simplistic and, uh, and, and universal understanding of what oxytocin is. So let's 
give us a little bit about where we stand. You know, first of all, you know, what what we know about oxytocin and where we stand with the current uh, set of doubts around it. So based on animal studies, I think it's uh, very reasonable to hypothesize that oxytocin is related to close, close relationships, like uh, parents' offsprings, and uh, maybe also romantic bonding. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is that in humans, we don't have much evidence uh, about it. And there has been some evidence that accumulated and what my study and other studies show that the value of this evidence is not very high. Uh, the most famous study about this topic was in 2005. Uh, researchers gave intranasal dose of oxytocin to people. So you just give it as a nose spray. Mm -hmm. And uh, according to yeah, some uh, Joe scientists... Joe is like, what? Uh, yeah, you can like sniff it. And does it do anything? The, the thing with oxytocin is that it's a relatively large molecule. Uh, and there is a uh, one thing that is called the blood-brain barrier. So not everything in your blood gets to your brain. Uh, and large molecules yeah, brain is, the brain is more is more uh, selective. What lets inside the brain because it's very important what can get in and that makes not sense. get in. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. brain doesn't let large molecules like uh, oxytocin cross. Uh, but there has been a suggestion that if you give it as a nasal spray, it may re uh, reach uh, target areas in the brain and change behavior this way. Uh, this is, by the way, still not completely validated, so we are not sure. Uh, but mm. uh, a study 13 years ago uh, showed that uh, if you give uh, oxytocin as a spray uh, to men, it makes them trust strangers more. Mm -hmm. Like it makes them send money to strangers over the internet uh, with uh, some expectation that uh, these uh, other people will send them money back, which mm -hmm. is a measure of trust. Right. Um, it sounds like something like a Batman villain would do, you know, that's <laughs> sprayed in the air and people start doing weird things. You know? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's a beautiful story. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, it caught a lot of uh, attention in the media. And uh, what my study showed uh, about... Uh, and there's another I one I, I, I share that with my students about if you, the people who get uh, intranasal oxytocin are more likely to leave an uh, envelope open with... Uh, their answers to all these like sensitive questions about sexuality yep. and whatnot, whereas the people who don't get the uh, oxytocin will tape the envelope shut in case you know someone opens them. So again, uh, as a, as an indication that oxytocin leads to more trust that nobody's going to open and read hmm. you know all these yep. sensitive information about them, right? So I, I would recommend next time when you revise your class materials to remove it because this study, like the researchers that actually conducted this study tried to replicate it several times and, mm -hmm. and failed and published this failure. I, 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 do, I do tell that as well to my yeah. students. Yeah, yeah. So I set it up as like this. These are some of the studies that really kind of got the, the public going about oxytocin. And then since then, we've had um, failure to replicate and so on. So, yeah, actually tell us about some of those problems. Yeah, well, you know, this, much of it is not related to oxytocin. It relates to science in general. Uh, we know that there is a replicability crisis in uh, the social sciences. Uh, there are many results that uh, do not replicate well. And uh, oxytocin research uh, is uh, one of the examples. It's one of those. Uh, so much of oxytocin work in humans does not seem to provide uh, actual evidence. If you really look at the literature as a whole and you try to see what consistently replicates and what uh, converges, there seems to be a lot of uh, studies, but uh, at the moment, all of them are suspected to be just false positives. Mm. And uh, this leaves us again uh, where we started. We know that it does these things in animals. We know <laughs> that it relates to bonding between mother and child and to lactation. Uh, and it relates to facilitating perturations. The hypotheses are still there. The amount of evidence is uh, not overwhelming. And uh, despite of that, we do see TED Talks and books. And even in Amazon now, you can buy oxytocin spray that allegedly <laughs> is going to uh, unleash the trust of your uh, of the opposite sex in you. And uh, I, I don't know, the product is not getting lots of stars. Ah. Uh, I think it's two stars in Amazon at the moment. <laughs> and of course, it's not surprising because we are not sure if it even gets to the brain. And we're also not sure what is the content of this uh, product. And we don't even know even if it got into the brain, what will be the effect? I would argue that trusting a stranger is not something that, uh, you know, young moms typically do. So <laughs> Young moms, yeah. Yeah, we need to be careful uh, about it. And I think it's a good cautionary tale not to rush and, uh, and act on every scientific uh, results that we hear because science process 
uh, processes over time and sometimes there are many results that uh, initially look uh, intriguing. Mm-hmm. The researchers that did the original study are great researchers, you know, they found something and they published it in nature, which is fantastic, but the community as a whole typically needs to do more research and replicate and, and get converging evidence, which uh, in the case of oxytocin, uh, we have this expression in Hebrew that sometimes you put the carriage in front of the horse. <laughs> uh, and that was, that's what happened with the uh, oxytocin research. So, so pretty much none of these early studies and findings that uh, got everyone so excited, none of them have replicated? You know, it's not like uh, people tried to replicate all of them. I know that right. now there are replication processes. I would say, uh, let's uh, wait a few more years before we start the... Uh, giving our autistic children or uh, partners uh, oxytocin to save our marriages. <laughs> okay, so right now we're kind of back to square one, you think, based on all the evidence that we have, that we just have the hypotheses from, from animals and can't really make any, any claims around what the f- effects would be in humans? Yes, I mean, this does not stop uh, people and even scientists to make these claims, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, yes, I think that if you look at the data uh, and what the data tells, it tells you that there is not a lot of evidence. Gotcha. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah. It was such a good story. Yeah, and I, know? Was, I was about to get out on Amazon and get some oxytocin <laughs> spray too, so I guess I'll cancel that order. <laughs> Delete you from... know, don't, don't rule out uh, the potency of placebo effects. Oh, uh, of course. But the placebo effect won't work anymore because now I've met you, so you've completely destroyed <laughs> the placebo effect on me there, Doc. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, you know, you can get some homeopathic uh, pills or other stuff that would boost your trust. <laughs> all right. Yeah, good luck with that. Okay. Wow, this is all fascinating. Uh, we have to wrap up, but thank you so much for being on the Science of Sex podcast. Yeah, that was a great pleasure, and uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. Sounds good. Wow, I, f- I feel kind of smarter. Do you? Yeah, there was a good. lot of technical information there, but I reined you in. I made sure you didn't do too you crazy did, into nerd town. So I, I think it, it's fascinating to to know how these things work and and how also what the implications of that are. You know, yeah. is testosterone uh, an excuse for you to do <laughs> certain things yeah. and and whatnot? So yeah, absolutely fascinating. So if you want more information about that, if you want to digest more of it, we've got all the links to all the studies we do mm-hmm. at the sciencesexpodcast dot com. Doctor John, you know our time is is done. Here. That's it? Yeah. Do me a favor. Call your mom today and ask her how many how many guys she's had sex with. Or women. Or whatever. Uh-huh. I, I think she's not going to be happy about that question. I have this feeling. But... All right. So if she were to rate and review this episode, she would not be happy with it because we Probably talk not. way too much oh, about yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She'd be like, what the fuck? Why? <laughs> Why is my number of partners out there on the ether? All right. So if you're not Jana's mother, make sure you rate and review us anywhere you listen to us on the Apple iTunes store, uh, the Google Play, Stitcher. Please let us know what you think. Mama Rangalova, we love you, okay? I'm going to go wash my like face or something. <laughs> right. I don't know. Bye. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, go to thescienceofsexpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Science of sex pod and follow us on facebook at the science of sex podcast subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast